Well, as we approach Christmas, um, you know we focus on the birth of Christ and really the amazing way that, uh, that the Savior came into the world. But Christmas, as we said last week, is really about a promise. In fact, the entire Bible is the story of a promise from beginning to end, a promise that God made that if you eat of the tree, you will die, and then He delays the ultimate fulfillment of that promise and makes another one. Whenever he calls Adam and Eve on the carpet for their, for their sin, he promises a seed that's going to come from the woman who's going to undo the curse. And then that is, is vague. We know it's a seed that's going to come from the woman, but we don't know the details about it. In the rest of the Bible, God fills in the gaps in those details. The Old Testament begins with a promise, and then the New Testament, when it starts, it harkens back to that promise before it shows us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. Matthew 1.1, the very first verse in the New Testament, starts with the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So after 400 plus years of silence, God's first words are a reminder of the promise that He made in the, in the old. And that's what we, we celebrate in Christmas, God fulfilling His ultimate promise, which comes through the promises that He made to Abraham and to, to David. God promised a son through Abraham. He would make a, a great nation out of, out of this, this man named Abram. He'll bring a son from him. And then all of the families of the earth would be blessed through that, through that promise. The blessing that all of the families of the earth would receive would be based on their response to what God does in and through Abraham. So that's the passage about, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You will be blessed if you uh, believe in the promise that God made through Abraham. You'll be cursed if you, if you re- reject that. God promised a king through David. A son through Abraham and a king through David. And this king will have a kingdom with no end. And that's what we're going to look at today. A messianic king will come. He will sojourn with his people and make a dwelling place in each of their heart. And then God will bring them all into a kingdom that will be forever and ever. And that king's going to come through David. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We said last week that the passage that we read in Genesis 12 to Abraham was, was, was a Mount Everest passage. It's, it's, the, it's the Great Commission in the Old Testament. And I would say this passage in 2 Samuel 7 is, is equally important. It's, it's epic. I really don't know of a word that, that I could give you to, to explain the significance of this passage. When was the last time that you read it? Well, whatever that is, we're going we're gonna to look at it in detail today. This passage contains what's called the Davidic Covenant. It's one of the most crucial theological statements in the Old Testament. It's the longest recorded statement that the Lord has made since the days of Moses. So what you're getting ready to hear, and you already heard when Tim read it, 
whenever God speaks through Nathan his prophet, it's the longest recorded statement that God makes since the days of Moses. And that's, that's obviously very significant. This passage is what the Jewish people quoted and clung to during the Holocaust and whenever they were scattered because it promises that there'll be an everlasting kingdom and that they'll be planted in a specific place. So as they're scattered, as they're being overtaken by their enemies, their minds hearken back to this promise. God promised a scepter to the tribe of Judah hundreds of years earlier in Genesis 49.10. And now he's going to fill in more of that promise by speaking directly to, to David. David, in this passage, is made the founder of the only royal family that God would ever sanction. And Israel will become part of a kingdom that will endure forever. There are 16 verses, 17 if you, if you count the, the last statement. And the outline is, is pretty simple. There are two scenes that reveal God's promise of, a, of an eternal king, and kingdom for that matter. It's announced through an everlasting pledge to the house of David, and there's two scenes. There's David's good intentions in verses 1 through 7, and then that leads into God's greater promise, their response. So David comes up with an idea. He has this discussion with Nathan. And he has very good intentions. And then God intervenes and answers and gives David a greater promise, and that's in verses 8 through, 8 through 17. It, is, it's a, it begins with David's desire. So, so let's look at that. David's desire, and that desire is, is good. It has, it has good intentions. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, Now it came, came, came about when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. But the king said to Nathan the prophet. The scene starts with a desire that, that David has. Now in chapter 6, the ark of God finally arrives in Jerusalem. And, and it brings, a, if you want to read some fearful and fascinating lessons about God's holiness in, in obeying his commands, read Second uh, Samuel chapter 6 and the verses prior. You may recall David and Israel don't transport the ark, ark correctly, and, and Uzzah touches it, and God kills him for it. That's in the chapter prior. God's commands are for our protection, and sometimes they protect us from him. You do not want to approach. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God unprotected without your sins covered. So there's this lesson about uh, um, God's holiness and obeying His commands and what happens when you don't. And, and then there's a lesson about blessing and joy that comes from obedience. You remember um, after God intervenes, David then leaves the ark at Obed-Edom's house, who is a Levite, the, the one who's supposed to be handling the ark, and then God blesses his home. And so... God shows that when he's obeyed, blessing comes, and then David brings the ark into Jerusalem, and he dances before it with, with the sheer joy, and Saul's daughter is displeased with him. Now, verse 1 of our passage gives the picture that all is well. The ark is in Jerusalem with blessing. David is established in his palace, and the land is at rest. But something is bothering David. 
Look at verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. With all the blessing that David desires, he desires to do something for the Lord. He says he lives in a house, but the ark sits in a mere tent. He's in cedar, but the presence of the Lord is behind curtains. And in David's mind, his house should not be better than the Lord's. And, and that's a good, it's good intention. So it's, that's his desire, and that's, it's, a, it's a good thing. And Nathan agrees. Look, if you would, at verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do it all that is in your heart or in your mind, for the Lord is, is with you. Now, is what David desired to do bad? And I think the answer to that is not no, not in motive. David had good intentions. It was honoring the Lord. It was reasonable. It seemed wise. Nathan the prophet affirms it. Dale Davis said to them, it seemed as obvious as serving pancakes at a pancake breakfast. The king's house should not be greater than the house that, that housed the, the ark. The problem was that neither of them submitted their reason to revelation. Neither David nor Nathan consulted the Lord about their good intentions or about David's desires. And we do that sometimes, don't we? What you want to do may have good motives and good intentions. It may not be inherently evil. It may make total sense to you. It may be like serving pancakes at a pancake breakfast, but you must always live with the words, if the Lord wills, in the back of your mind and on your heart. That's what James tells us. I have good intentions. Obviously, you know not to do something with bad intentions or something that's unrighteous or something that would dishonor God. So this is, what, this, this is a rebuke or an encouragement whenever you have good intentions. You always live with, if the Lord wills, you always submit your reason to revelation. And that's the moral. Reason must be submitted to revelation. Now, I don't want to to communicate to you something that you hear on a regular basis, which is wrong, which is that, that there's faith and then there's reason. Your faith is absolutely reasonable. It's absolutely logical. There's not this idea that there is, that you, you, you Christians be faith, you have your faith and have your mystical stuff, and then us real people over here will deal with intellect and logic and, and science and those type of things. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. Your faith is absolutely reasonable. If you believe that the Bible is true, if the presupposition is that the Bible is the Word of God and God is real, then everything that you believe is absolutely reasonable. But that's obviously the key. The reason that they reject it is they don't believe that. People who don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, people that don't believe that there is a God, it, your faith is illogical to them. But it's totally reasonable. And you can protect yourself by allowing your reason to get out from under revelation. That's what comes first, revelation and then reason, by obeying Romans 12, 1 and 2. You renew your minds. And by renewing your minds, you can develop discernment. That verse ends with, so that you may prove or put to the test what is good, well-pleasing, and, and perfect to, to the Lord. Now, let me tell you why this passage should be very encouraging to you. You're sitting there saying, man, that scares me a little bit. My reason, I could have perfectly good intentions, 
and I cannot do what God wants me to do. That's kind of scary because I know I'm an oddhead and, and I am right there with you. But let me tell you why this passage should be very encouraging to you. Look, if you would, at verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant, David. You know what that shows you? God intervenes. <laughs> he directed his king through his prophet. And so if you have good intentions, and sometimes you fail to submit your reason to revelation, God will intervene and correct you with his providence. So do what you know to do. Desire what the Lord desires, and then do what you know to do, and then trust that his promise, his providence will work out according to to his promises. Watch how God directs David through his, pro, uh, through his prophet. He asks him two questions, and he adds some divine reason. So human reason now intersects with divine reason through revelation. Verse 5, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? He asks him two questions. Are you the one who should build me a house? And in verse 7, uh, uh, have I ever commanded you or any leader to build me a house? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? That's the question. God says, did I ask that of anybody? And the answer to both of those implied is no. No, you should not be the one to build me a house. And God explains later it's because David has shed too much blood. The temple should not be associated with a warrior, but uh, the priesthood. God doesn't conquer by the sword. He conquers by the cross. So no, David is not going to be the one who will build the house, the temple. The second question also is, is no. I've never commanded you or any leader to build me a house. Good intentions, the good intentions of David and Nathan were based on bad assumptions. And that was not God's plan. Human plans are corrected by divine revelation. Look at these two questions in detail. Verse 5, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? The Lord begins to explain why it's not the time and why he's not the man. God presents the same contrast here about their houses, but he turns it around and shows, shows David something marvelous, shows you something marvelous. Look at what he says. Verse 6, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And verse 7, Whenever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak this word? God says He's not planted roots because He's been traveling with His people. Do you see that? The word dwell means to sit or to settle. God says, I have not settled because my people have not settled. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, I did not ask for a house. You see what he's saying? He not only is God, the one who's worthy of a house that's much better than David, a human king, but he's the God who dwells with his people. He goes everywhere they go and vice versa. David saw that he was God and deserved a great house. And God says, I am God. But I have chosen to be the God who dwells with my people. And my house will be with them. And God is still residing 
with His people. As we sojourn in this world, as we wander through this world, this world is not our home. We're passing through, as the song says. As we sojourn in this world until the final resting place comes to pass, when God will be in heaven, in the new heaven, in the new earth, and we, His people, will be there in His midst. And that's what He's doing in this promise. He'll bring a king, and that king's going to make a people, and that king is going to bring those people into a kingdom that's settled in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, David and Nathan made a common mistake. They overemphasized one of God's attributes to the detriment of another. Be careful not to do that. Don't overemphasize God's love to the extent that, that you don't equally hold up His holy and righteous and just wrath. And don't overemphasize His holy and righteous and just wrath to the extent that you miss His gracious and condescending compassion that comes to us where Jesus reveals Himself as a friend of sinners. Is that not beautiful? They saw the holiness of God, but they missed the humility of God. God was as holy as David thought and more. He just killed a man. <laughs> for touching the ark whenever the ark was on a cart. God deserved all the honor David wanted to bestow. But God was also the God who condescends. And that's exactly what He did in the Incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why this is about Christmas. He condescended and came to us. He will be with us. He'll never leave us. He's promised to be with us forever. God has promised to be with you, you, me, forever. Never leave you, no matter what. That's an amazing, amazing promise. And now God responds to David's good intentions with a, with a greater promise. Look at God's declaration of a greater promise, you would at verse 8. Notice there's a transition here. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. There is more evidence that what David desired was not wrong or, or evil. God is correcting him with divine revelation, correcting his human reason with divine revelation. But he calls him my servant. David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies before you. David, God corrects David, but he reminds him of his faithfulness in the past. Do you see that? I took you, past tense. I have been with you in verse 9. I have cut off, past tense. You see that? He reminds him of his faithfulness in the past, and then he points him to the future. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people 
Israel. God tells David about promises that he's already fulfilled. God then tells David about promises that are going to come during David's life. That's what we just read. But the crescendo, this entire passage, is God tells David about, David about promises that are going to come after David's death. God reminds David of his promises already fulfilled. He reminds David of his choice. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep. That's God's choice. God chose David. Chose David to be a king. And God chose David to be his own. He also reminded David of his presence. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone. You, You hear the echo? I don't need to be planted in a physical house. I will be in the midst of my people. I will be with them wherever they go. They'll be in my presence. I will be in this presence. And God reminds David, just as he chose Abraham, he chose David. And just as he will be with Abraham and Abraham's people, he will also be with David, wherever David has gone. And he also reminds them of his power. He says that I have cut off all of your enemies before you. You know what that says? It wasn't the fact that David was some strong warrior. David was. But what was David's strength? How did David defeat Goliath? By Saul's armor? No. (laughs) By the Lord. It was God's power. And God is reminding David of his choice, his presence, and his power. And then God promises him three things during his life. He promises him a great name. And I will make you a great name. In the Hebrew, that's in the future. I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. This is in the beginning of David's reign. Verse 10, He promises an appointed place for Israel. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And He promises rest from all of their enemies. All this is in the future. I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them as any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded the judges to be over my people, Israel. My servant David, my people Israel. He promises a great name, an appointed place, and rest. And you should be hearing the Abrahamic covenant, right? A great name and land, and blessing. God is still fulfilling His promise to Abraham, even as He fulfills the promise to David. God helps David see what he will do by showing him what he has done. And then God promises greater things to be fulfilled even after David's death. Charles Spurgeon said one of the great things about the promises of God is there's more to come. Can you right now this morning think back on what the Lord has done for you, past tense? Has He done some things for you? (laughs) Did you know there's more yet to come? Hallelujah. In your life, there's more yet to come. Did you know that there's even more greater promises yet to be fulfilled when you leave this earth and you're with Him in heaven? There's more yet to come. And there's more yet to come for David. Look, if you would, at verse 11. At the end of it. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, don't miss this because this is breathtaking. 
the Lord also declares to you. You know, you, you kind of hear how this is what's coming is new. Pay attention. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make you a house or make a house for you. Now, David already has a house, right? I mean, that's how this whole thing got started. <laughs> I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. The Lord's house is, amongst, is under curtains. So what's God talking about? David wants to build a house for God to dwell in, and God instead promises to make a house out of David that God will dwell in forever. God promises to make David a dynasty. His kingship will be the instrument through which God redeems His people. God will plant His people in the land where He will dwell with them, presence, and He'll be their God and they'll be His people. There'll be a king and there will be a kingdom. And He promises to make a house out of David. You see, God will have a house, one that He is worthy of. You know what the breathtaking thing of this passage is? That house is you right now. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not a house worthy of the Lord. No, you're not on your own, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. You have been sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why you can't come to God apart from the work of Christ? Because you are unworthy. And if you come into the presence of the Lord apart from God setting you apart and making you His house, you'll be just like Uzzah. You'll die. But God will accomplish that through a Messianic king who will come. He'll sojourn with His people and take, make a temple in each of their hearts. And then God will bring all of them into a kingdom that will be forever. And this king will come through David. And that's grace. And God says that it's going to come in two phases. If you would, at verse 12. David wants to build the Lord a house. The Lord says, I'm going to make you a house. Unsolicited. This has nothing to do with David. It has nothing to do with David's good intentions. A divine revelation has to correct human reason. Look at what he says in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down to your fathers, I will raise up your descendants. After his death, God promises David to raise up descendants from David's line. Look at what else he promises. I will establish his kingdom. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Look at the rest of verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 14. I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. Look at the rest of verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of men. Look at verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him like I took it away from Saul. This promise has an end time and a future fulfillment. And you don't have to guess which part is which. God promises that He's going to make David a house. He's going to make a house out of David. David's going to have a dynasty, and that's going to be fulfilled after David dies, and it's going to come in two parts. There's going to be the promise of a son who's going to sit on a throne, and God's going to bless him, but he's going to commit iniquity. That's Solomon and the sons that follow. That's the end-time promise. Human kings are going to sit on David's throne. And then there's the promise of a sinless son 
who rules a forever kingdom. And that's the Messiah. The Bible shows us here the present son of David has a temporal throne, builds a temporal house for the Lord, and he commits iniquity. You see that? God will raise up human kings from David after David's gone. And he'll respond to their sin with more grace by disciplining them. One writer said, Sin can destroy the current residence of David's house, but it cannot destroy the house itself. The sin of Solomon and the future kings can bring devastation to them personally, can bring pain to the people, and it does, but it will not harm the throne itself that was promised to David based on God's promise alone. And there's also going to be a future son that will be God's son. And he's going to build a spiritual house. And God's going to chasten him for sin that he didn't commit. And he's going to, an everlasting, he's going to have an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. Look, if you would, at verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. You know how Mark 1, 1 starts? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, how's that possible? The virgin birth. Now, I want you to notice that this Davidic king, in verse 14, will be punished when he commits iniquity. Or if he commits iniquity, some of your translations may say. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. Did Solomon commit iniquity? Yes. Did the Lord Jesus commit iniquity? No. But look at how this chastisement comes. The chastisement, the correction, is going to come with the rod of men and with the strokes of men. God will punish Solomon for his sin, but the future king will be punished by God for the sins of others with the strokes of his own creation. And you don't have to question whether this goes beyond Solomon because Jesus himself said it does. Jesus claimed a temple that the disciples were looking at in Mark, and we'll be back there after Christmas, Jesus claimed the temple the disciples saw would be torn down, and He would build a temple in three days in Matthew chapter 26. He said His throne was an eternal throne in Matthew 19. And He said of His kingdom there would be no end in John 18. And God tells David here, while we're waiting for things to come to pass... The sin of those earthly kings that are going to come will not cause God to forsake His promise or thwart His plan. That's verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from Him. This entire promise, past, present, and future, is all the Lord. Every bit of it. It's irrevocable. It's completely Him. Look at the language of verse 12. I will raise up. I will establish His kingdom. I will establish the throne. I will be a father. I will scourge Him. But my loving kindness shall not depart from Him. God is indefectible to His promises. He will not forsake them. He will not relent. He will not let go. And not even David's sin will cause God to withdraw His promises. You want, you want one, of the, one of the most amazing things about the Davidic covenant? 
Did you know the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah has not happened yet? (laughs) That's going to happen in two chapters. God is saying this to David before David ever lays eyes on Bathsheba and before he ever has Uriah killed. And not even David's sin will cause God to withdraw his promise. That happens in chapter 11. And Solomon's sin will not cause God to withdraw his promise. And your sin will not cause God to withdraw His promise. It's God's grace. And His promise will endure forever. And that's the point of the the final verses. Dale Davis says, Death does not annul this promise. Sin does not destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. That's what the Lord says in these last few verses. David's death does not annul this promise. View it at verse 12. David will lie down, and God says, I will raise up. You'll lie down, I will rise up. We'll raise up. God will raise up kings after David is dead when he can't do anything about it to assist. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to look ahead, and I, I like to fix things. And some of you probably have wills, and some of you probably have instructions for what's going to happen after you're dead. And hopefully people will, will, will do what you've asked them to do. But did you know if they don't, there's not a thing that you can do about it. You're dead, right? <laughs> and God says to David, you're going to lay down and go in the grave and you're not going to be able to do a thing about what happens to your throne. But when you lay down, I'm going to raise up. God will raise up king after David and that the emphasis is grace. He also says his future son's sin can't destroy it. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him. I think you can say when. It says when he commits. And even if you want to say if he commits it, God obviously knows Solomon will. God's plans aren't thwarted by the sin of man. God's plans overcome. The sin of man. Sin will not have dominion over his dominion. (laughs) Listen. If God's plans and his salvation and what's going to turn out, the way it's going to happen, if they were subjected to your faithfulness or my faithfulness or lack of of failure, not one of them would come to pass. Not one of them. It's his fidelity, not yours. And you know what that makes me want to do? makes me want to be faithful. <laughs> He's the one who says simplify in your salvation, not you. You're not always faithful. I want to be always faithful, but I'm not. Iniquity will not dissolve His covenant love. Verse 15, But my loving kindness, my said, shall not depart from Him. David's line will never meet the same end as Saul's. Don't miss this. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, in verse 15, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. David's line will never meet the same end as Saul's. Why? Because David was less sinful than Saul? Are you kidding me? This man did what he did with Bathsheba and sent his husband into the hottest parts of the battle to murder him, 
to cover his own sin. You think David was more righteous than Saul? No. It was because Saul was not God's choice and David was. God's commitment to you is based on his faithfulness and his choice, not your righteousness, what you were or what you will ever be. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hallelujah. Your salvation is based on an oath that God swore based on himself, not on you. That's why you'll never be plucked out of the Father's hand. Death does not annul it, sin does not destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. Look at verse 16. This is an everlasting promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times in this entire promise, God says forever. Twice here in verse 16 and once in verse 13. God's promise to David will never wear out. It will have no end. Time will pass, but it will not erode one atom from the granite of God's kingdom or His throne that He promised to David. The Messiah's kingdom will have no end. And time passes for you. It's like a vapor, but it passes for you. And just because time passes, just because you're 80 doesn't mean that the promise that God made to you when you bowed your knee and, and asked the Lord to save you whenever you were 14, there's not a single thing that's eroded. And time passes, but it will not erode His promise. His kingdom is unstoppable. Is, is unstoppable. His kingdom is inevitable. Or it's unstoppable if you want to put both of those together. Death and sin and time will do what they will do, but they're not going to prevent the kingdom that's coming. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Pretty strong promise, isn't it? Solomon, David will lay down and Solomon will, will come up and Solomon will fail. His sons will be worse than him, and they're going to divide the kingdom. And they're going to do horrible things in Dan. And then Israel, out of their disobedience, is going to be swept into exile. They're going to be scattered throughout the earth. They're either even going to come under the subjection of foreign kings. They're going to be out of the land they're going to be spread everywhere and they're going to be under the subjection of foreign kings. But unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And centuries later, at the right time, the son of Abraham, the son of David, in him who has no sin, he's going to condescend incarnation and come to His people. He's going to live amongst them. And they're going to reject Him. And for their sins, God will punish Him. And they'll strike Him and He'll conquer death, the death that David succumbed to. 
And the chastisement of our peace will fall on Him and He'll take away our sin. And as He rises from the grave, He prepares a kingdom of which there will be no end. Isn't that beautiful? James Oscar Boyd said in the Princeton Theological Review, David's ear did not miss the music of those wonderful words forever in verses 13 and 16. They end up upon his tongue. Look, if you would, at verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. What would you do if you had a promise made to you like that? And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Look at verse 24. And you have established for yourself your people Israel and your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever. No, those words didn't wasn't they weren't missed by David, they end up on his tongue. And he repeats them in this praise filled prayer that comes next. Boyd says they're like the Hallelujah chorus. At the very end, he shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. 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 Forever and ever. And this same Jesus that came is coming again. Do you know Him? Because when He comes again, He's coming for His people. And if you don't come through the promise that God made to Abraham by faith alone and trust in the the Son that God sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, and if you don't come by grace alone, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him, what He made for you then when this king comes the next time, he'll come not as a king to gather you as his people, he'll come as the king who will judge you as a rebel, as a usurper. Because you live in his kingdom right now. This is God's kingdom. This is not Donald Trump's. It's not whoever comes after him. It's not President Xi's. It's not Vladimir Putin's. It's not CNN's. It's, no, it's the Lord Jesus Christ's world and his kingdom. And God's appointed a day in which he'll judge this world. You know how he's going to judge them? By this one that David speaks of here. Don't you bow your heads. What a promise the Lord has given us in Christmas. Nothing will thwart His promise. Nothing will stop His kingdom. And you know why His kingdom hasn't come yet? Because God is long-suffering and He doesn't want you to perish. (laughs) And you have to come and you acknowledge your sin, you have repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of His grace and His promise, He'll bring you into His kingdom. 
And He'll promise you a home in heaven. And that's something surely to celebrate during this Christmas. After I pray, there's going to be a prayer room over to our right. <clears throat> be somebody there if you want to pray by yourself or with them. You do it in your seat, wherever it might be. Call upon the Lord while He may be found.